GE needed a way to tell complicated stories and connect with the world it serves. So it built a digital platform and app that empowered its best and most authentic storytellers, its employees. If you have a culture where you're afraid of what your employees are going to say about you, then you already have a problem. We created GE Voices to amplify the voices of the people that care about GE the most, our employees, our suppliers, and our contractors. That's Deirdre Latour, CCO at GE, and my guest on today's episode of the Page Society's new CCO podcast, where we explore what it takes to be a next-gen CCO. I'm Stacey Tank, CCO at The Home Depot. Today, I'm talking with Deirdre about how GE is using digital platforms to reimagine global communications. Deirdre, welcome. It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to do this. To start us off, GE is a huge company, 300,000 employees, 125 years old. Can you talk in that spirit about how you developed the idea for GE Voices and how you brought it to life? We decided as a team about a year ago, year and a half ago, that in order to more effectively communicate with our audiences, we had to do a real audience-first approach. So in order to do that, you have to build a data-driven campaign, which I would say if there are 10 steps to being a really data-driven communications team, we're on step two of 10. But to just get us started, our Washington team, actually, the public affairs team started something called GE Voices to really be able to speak directly to key audiences about issues that matter to the company and to explain what the company is doing, what the strategy of the company is to audiences. So we're at about 100,000 people in this GE Voices campaign, and that includes suppliers, employees, contractors, people that just work or are touched by GE. And we go to them for very specific issues that they're interested in. Either they're just learning or we just say, please write to your senator about tax reform or please talk to your congressman about this or please go to your employees and explain something. It's communications with action at the end. Mm -hmm. I love that. I love the action part because otherwise, you know, if it doesn't result in something, you've only gone halfway there. You used a term audience first, taking an audience first approach. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I think instead of just building campaigns that communicate the messages that we felt we wanted to communicate, we're really trying to be more thoughtful. Some of it seems a little 101, but to really be more thoughtful about what exactly matters to investors. How do you communicate with them where they are, when they want to hear it, what they want to hear, what actually matters to employees? How do you communicate them? So going through, if you go through a stakeholder analysis, really think about the audience first and then build campaigns and messaging to address that. I mean, it's very similar to politics. I do think people get confused when they say, you know, we should run everything like it's a political campaign. I think politics and business communications are quite different, but there's a lot of the skills that they use in political campaigns, particularly now in a data world where I think business communications teams need to do more and more of. So it's just a very specific audience first versus what the leadership team wants or what the communication team thinks is the right thing to do. Can you double click into the data-driven part too and talk a little bit about where to start? Because I think folks know we should be using data to inform our choices and our investments to learn and keep the cycle going to develop engagement over time. But a lot of times you feel paralyzed by that and you don't know where to start. 
I think data in the communications world is really intimidating. So we just started with an analysis of what we have, anything we get our hands on. What does our employee base look like? Who are they? What do our investors look like? Who are they? We have a massive retail base. We just sort of try to aggregate all that data and start to do analysis of that. But it is an intimidating process to do. And ultimately, where I would love to be is to have a data expert in-house, which a lot of companies are moving towards. That's literally someone that's on the team that understands big data, but in the communications marketing brand sense. Makes a lot of sense. And I think we all dream about going from a more manual data engagement world to a place where we have artificial intelligence sitting on top of it. Yep. We can do pattern recognition and maybe not make recommendations so explicitly, but give you information that will help you make better decisions. Exactly. And it's so important for spend. I mean, the efficiency of where do you actually put your dollars? What's the ROI on that? And how are we doing that? So I think it's much more of a marketing, to be truthful, approach to how you do communications. I think it's still early days. Could you talk about GE Reports a little bit more too? So your team was really ahead of the game when it comes to owned media Mm -hmm. and self-publishing. And that was coming a bit out of the financial crisis where traditional media was changing and rise of bloggers and really having a deep desire to tell the story in the way that felt authentic to the company. So almost 10 years old, you have refreshed it several times, including recently. You have an amazing editor and I read it. I get it in my box every time it publishes. But could you talk a little bit about that journey And then also what came with the latest relaunch? I still think journalism is incredibly important. And we work very closely with journalists all over the world. It's a huge, huge piece of the puzzle. I think there tends to be an overcorrection on we can go direct and do our own content and journalism is a sidebar. So it's not for my team. Out of the financial crisis, Beth Comstock really said, we need to figure out how to tell art. The stock went down to like a little more than five bucks. We needed to figure out how to tell the GE story to people in a credible way. She brought in Steve Schmidt on the Republican side and David Fluff on the Democratic side. And we did a war room. And out of that war room was born GE Reports. And there was a lot of people on the team, obviously, that were involved in building that. And it has become a really effective tool of telling the GE story. But most of it is big thematic technology, digital software storytelling, which is really the DNA of the company. And we just want to bring that DNA to life so people see what it is, especially to shout louder when the financial media coverage is not as positive as we would want it. It's so different in many ways in the Home Depot because you have such an awesome connection with the people that come through your stores. But now we don't have appliances. We sell jet engines and big healthcare equipment. And it's always been the philosophy of the team and really for many years led by Beth Comstock and Linda Both that actually B2B purchasers or people. It's a very shocking um, (laughs) thing to realize that people that- They're not robots? They're not (laughs) robots, that people that work at at, uh, Boeing and other places and energy companies actually watch football games and experience (laughs) things, have families. And um, so I think it's really been, you know, reputation is so critical. It's the right to do business, right? You can't sell anything to any community if people don't understand the values, the essence of what the company stands for. Mm -hmm. So we've always been um, focused on that. And that's why we do uh, broad advertising. That's why we do broader storytelling. That said, where the company is today in the cycle that we're in, I think we need to be more focused and more targeted than we were. So we're in a period of adjustment also. Mm -hmm. 
So we've talked about GE Voices and how it came to life. Can you talk us through an example of how you activated GE Voices in a specific campaign? Yeah, I think the most recent example that's probably a good one is tax reform. So from a tax reform perspective, it's very hard for people to understand why a big company that seemingly has a lot of money, why tax reform is important. So we've really used the GE Voices community or worked with the GE Voices community to explain how it impacts competitiveness, why it's important, why it's important to a guy that works in an aviation factory or a, a small local supplier. And we've done all sorts of activation. For example, we just did this week a webinar where we targeted people and said, if you're interested in understanding more of what's in the tax reform bill and how it impacts you at a local level, we have an expert on tax internally who had this webinar and we had 600 people on it, which I thought wow. for the topic yeah. was huge. Now, maybe I'm just, you know, find tax people boring. People tax reform. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, for me, if it was about fashion, I would have been on. But I um, and asking people in specific states to really reach out to their senators and encourage them to vote yes for tax reform. and But just in a way that is meaningful to people and not corporate speak. And so we've really worked with that network to do that. I think you and the team did all the hard work to have the channels there, to have the audiences there, which in a time of transformation is really incredibly helpful because you're able to tell your story, bring people along, paint the picture of the future. Can you talk about how you're doing that now in this moment of transformation and how you're leveraging all those channels? And I know the company also really believes in this idea of radical transparency, right? So these channels help you to be accessible to the world and tell your story. Can you talk a little bit about what that's like from the moment that the new CEO came on board to the world and how that's playing out? And this is a challenging time in the history of the company. We're in a period where our performance hasn't been what it should be and what people expect. And we did have a very huge leadership transition in June. We announced a new CEO. And so this is really uh, self-analysis or, you know, rebirth of what should communications look like for GE. We've had such awesome success in the past and great campaigns, but I don't know that going forward it should look exactly the same, mm -hmm. right? Because companies right. evolve so much. When we announced the new CEO, we decided to do it on Facebook Live instead of doing a press conference because I was very committed to that it was an employee-first exercise. And we've been committed, as you know, to use every new platform that we can get our hands on and just experiment and try. And I was, mm -hmm. I was really happy. The employees really felt good about it. Mm -hmm. And we did so much leading into that. That was at 9 a.m. Eastern time that morning. But we did a ton of employee internal communication before 9 a.m. So they felt like they were looped in and that was kind of the capper to it. Yeah. So it was our story, our way, as our former chairman used to say. Love that. No, yeah. I heard really great feedback. So in this time of transformation, and knowing you, Deirdre, you are a warrior. You are the right person at the right time to be in this job, leading this team, leading this company with your new CEO and, and the leadership team. Can you talk about how you got to this point? So there were obviously many things in your life that prepared you from a capability perspective. Can you narrate a little bit about your personal story for us? I've been doing a lot of thinking about this in the last six months because it's been such a challenging six months. And I mean, to me, it's all about resilience and how do you develop, and you know this well because you're an incredibly resilient person, Stacey, but how you develop that resilience and the ability to have a tough day and go home and feel 
like junk and like you're the worst communicator ever and there's got to be 10 people that are better to do this job than you and then get up in the morning and feel like you can come in and do it again and lead, especially and lead your people. And the biggest thing that's been helpful to me is my team because I have such a phenomenal team that there's so much trust and support of each other that I never want to let them down, even more than the CEO or anyone else. I never want to let the people down that come in here and work so hard. So you really rally for that. I think the biggest thing in my recent life was the that helped me weirdly, like what happens in your life to prepare you for what you have to do is a mystery. It was when my son was diagnosed with autism, I think it was so incredibly shattering for me at the time and deciding how you're going to get to the next phase and be able to get into solution mode and do what you need to do for him and rally has weirdly given me skills, I think, for for what we need to do today and into 18. And puts things in perspective, right, a little bit too. It puts things in perspective for sure. You know, we always used to joke, it's not ER, it's PR, right? It's like, you know, you're not- <laughs> It feels like ER. I know, it does it? feel like ER. It does feel like ER. You don't really understand the rhythm of a job like this unless you do a job like this. But I do think that is um, a big thing. And also, I was an only child. And I think when I- came into the work world, I was really a horrible leader. I didn't understand how to influence people and how to work with people. And I mean, I have fantastic parents and everything, but I had a great childhood actually. But I just had an isolated childhood, if that makes sense, right? So that whole journey at GE of working with coaches and figuring out how to be the best possible Deirdre at work and then working with my son, I think, led to where we are. That's a long answer. For, no, yeah. it's, it's beautiful. And it's a lot of credit to you for doing the hard work, right? Because this is really hard work. It's hard work. It's vulnerable work, mm-hmm. but it is worth doing, right? And Very you do it much. your whole life. Mm-hmm. Right. I'll do it till the day I retire. When you think about over that period of time, the design of functions and teams has had to evolve. Mm-hmm. And I've watched you all put more resources in certain places We all went through an obsession with content. Now we're all figuring out how do we get that content to the right people in the Mm -hmm. right moment and how do we Mm -hmm. use data to do that. Um, There was an amp room at one point Mm -hmm. that I so fondly Mm -hmm. reflect on. Can you talk about how the design of your function has matured and changed over time and then maybe a bit where you see things going? Yeah, I mean, the design of the function is um, really much flatter and we really work to break down silos. You can't say in today's world with social media and everything else that like, oh, we're only going to do this internally and it's going to stay in our cute little walls and like no one's going to talk about it. It doesn't work that way, right? Mm -hmm. So we've broken down the team to be much more creative experts, data experts, media experts that cross all projects and all efforts. And we've worked really hard at integrating with the brand marketing team so that we have one team. We're in the process right now of building the 18 strategy and we're doing it as one integrated team, which is a little painful in some ways because that means that you're in a room with 25 people that are a mix of marketing and communications sort of hashing out what people think should happen. But ultimately, I think that messiness is going to be a better integrated product. Mm -hmm. So the breaking down of silos, I would say, and then all the skill set, the need for broad geopolitical understanding And context is so different, I think, even in the last two years. So I expect the team to understand everything that we do, what our place is in the world and how that connects, what decision you make in 
New York City, how that connects to Beijing, what the reverberation is. So mm. it's a different skill set, I think, than when you and I were here together many years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. How do you know if it's working? How do you, what are some of the measures, and I'm sure each campaign has different measures of success, but what are kind of over the course of six or 12 months, what's the barometer that you use? I think metrics is so challenging. I mean, metrics is like a whole separate holy grail in our world, right? But for voices, it's a little bit easier because you can do participation, right? You could say like, well, we're hoping for 200 people on a webinar, we get 600 people. And actual results of, yes, we know this number of people actually reached out to their senator. To some degree, when we're working on campaigns that are really important to GE, like the Export-Import Bank, which is very wonky, but did we win? Did we get the Exxon Bank ratified again? Did tax reform go the way we want? To some degree, those are tough metrics. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a, a broad thing. We do a lot of reputation. A lot is an exaggeration. We do reputation polling. So we have various other inputs on metrics that we use. Very good. And you were recently elevated in your role to not only being the chief communications officer, but a senior advisor to the CEO, John Flannery. Congratulations on Thank that. You. It's Thanks. exciting to Thanks. see it. Can you talk a little bit about what that means and how your role might shift a bit with your new CEO and yeah. supporting him? The most important thing about that announcement was the team, the recognition for the team of communications having a real seat at the table in making major decisions about the company, that there was a holistic view. And it's a recognition by John that reputation is critical to strategy. There is no company without reputation. Um, that reputation is strategy. So more and more, I think the C-suite in companies is recognizing that. I know you have that at Home Depot. So it just means that in discussions about where the company is going, the strategy, communications has a voice in that. So I think that's huge. And I wouldn't be able to work again at a company that didn't have that. It's like the song in Hamilton, you got to be in the room where it happens. <laughs> if you're in the room where it happens, to me, who reports where is kind of irrelevant. But mm -hmm. but it is symbolic that he did it. Fantastic. Congratulations Thank again. You. Thanks. So Deirdre, in this moment of transformation for the company, sometimes you take a look at what worked in the past and realize that you want to change some things up for the future, right? The playbook of the last 10 years won't be the playbook to lead you to success for the next 10. Can you talk a little bit about how you're shifting your approach going forward? Yeah, there's been a lot of um, discussion amongst the GE community about the tone and approach of messaging that we've taken specifically since earnings, when we had earnings in October and John did CNBC in the U.S. And it's really been a concerted effort to own with transparency, candor, directness, where we are, why we think we are where we are, and what the path is to succeed and how we're going to win. And so that is really, in some ways, it's exactly what we need to do internally, especially for our people, so that people feel that they can trust us, right? Mm -hmm. But it's also very difficult for some people because for a CEO of a company to go on CNBC and say our results are unacceptable is counter to what many people view as a communications approach, right? You know, mm -hmm, it's just sure. very direct. And he and I and the team, we feel strongly that that this is not a time in our history for spin. Right. And this is not a time in that what matters are the company today and going forward 
and our people today and going forward and not protecting what was. It's a tough thing to do. It's easier to go on and to message very overly polite and, you know, sort of put nice messages around things. And internally, every single Friday, John does a video. Um, it's an iPhone video and it's like the worst quality. Is it a like, selfie? He holds it up and just... <laughs> uh, I, I, someone, uh, Logan on our team in Boston goes down with her phone and holds up her iPhone and tapes him. I mean, it looks like a hostage video. Yeah. I mean, it's like I should it's have him hold kind. up a newspaper. <laughs> uh, just prove the date. And we have a system digitally where people vote up the questions they want answered in the company. And so he answers the top voted questions from the team. And they're tough questions. You never get questions like, why are you so handsome? I want to know. <laughs> um, so he, um, so that's the approach that we're taking. And sometimes it's working really, really well. We've had a few missteps, trial and error a little bit, because it's culturally new. Right. So it's taking that approach to this big storied old company. But there's a point to that. We need to have debate. Sometimes we have to have these tough conversations and follow our instincts and really put reputation on the table as a central factor in decision making. Can you talk a little bit more about how you do that? I always talk to my team about the importance of speaking up and listening to your gut instincts. You know, I do a lot of things not great. I do a lot of things I need to improve, but my instincts are good. So when I ignore my instincts and don't speak up. My awesome predecessor who taught me everything, Gary Sheffer, used to say, you know, it's hard to be the skunk at the garden party. And when, sometimes when you're the person representing reputation in a meeting, you feel a little bit like the skunk at the garden party. Like, have you thought about the <laughs> negative repercussions? And sometimes, you know, it's like the idea of picking your battles. And so if you ignore what you feel is the right thing, then I always get in trouble every single time. And that comes from time and experience. And I've been in communications for 25 years. So you have to build that up over time, obviously, and you have to make mistakes, fail, readjust, and then learn what your instincts are. But I think it's a huge thing, especially for women. I would say if you're in a high-powered room that is largely male, sometimes it's hard to be the one to say, I don't agree with every single one of you at the table. So it's, you really have to, in some ways, develop that courage to do that. Absolutely. It's how we make our money, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stay exactly. Yeah. yeah someone said that to me recently. I, I was giving someone perspective on something, a very senior person. And I said, I hope you don't mind me saying. And he looked at me and said, well, that's your job. And I thought, well, that was, that was a good response, but he's right. Deirdre, this is so much fun. It's a joy to be able to talk to you. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. I was so happy to do it. It was fun to do it with you. So thanks very much. That's all for this episode of the new CCO podcast. We hope you'll join us again.